Hello and welcome to Something to Do with Art with me, Robert Good. In this episode, I meet up with Liz Brady. Liz is an artist and the founder of Broken Grey Wires, an arts organisation that responds to and explores mental health. In her own work, Liz frequently uses her own mental health as source material, so I'm keen to find out more about Liz's mental health landscape and how it affects and informs her work. Liz is also a fanatical Everton supporter and one of the few fellow football-loving artists that I know. So I want to find out if the regular disappointment that surely must come with supporting a mid-table club with such passion is good for her mental health well-being. Our conversation takes place at her home in Manchester, accompanied by her beloved cat, Jackson. So join me for this edition of Something to Do with Art, and let's see where today's conversation might take us. This week I'm just outside Manchester to meet my good friend, the artist, curator and football fan, Liz Brady. Hello Liz. Hi Robert. And welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for agreeing to this. So your work spans video and installation, would you say? Yeah, definitely. Dealing with issues of mental health? Yeah. Frequently your own? Mm-hmm. And you've also curated some amazing shows under the banner of your Broken Grey Wires Collective. Yeah, the first... Big show was 2017 in London at Guest Projects. Uh, that was with artists David Shrigley, Jeremy Della, the Chapman Brothers, and many more. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I've got upcoming one in Middlesbrough at the Auxiliary, but that's been postponed because of the virus, unfortunately. Well, we'll talk about that maybe in a little bit. Yeah, sure, yeah. Before we just started, before we came on air, I was going to ask you to uh, describe your work for my listeners, but you were not so keen to do that. Funny enough, on another podcast, we had quite an extensive chat about the difficulties of framing and describing your own work. I was talking to Carl Gent and he just describes himself as artist from Bexhill-on-Sea <laughs> and I said that's perfect because once you go beyond that uh, it becomes problematic doesn't it? Yeah. So instead shall I read you a little bit of the artist statement of Liz Brady? Okay yeah go for it. I have been living and painting in Santa Barbara for the past 30 years. Studies of earth, sky (laughs) and the sea are prevalent in my most recent work. The organic shapes and patterns of these forms are diverse, intriguing and beautiful to me. I am moved by their simplicity and complexity. So there you go. Yes, well this is Liz with one Z. It is. Yeah. You've come across this before. Oh, yeah. That's actually one of the reasons why I changed my name to two Zs. Because Interesting. when I was at uni, I was Googling myself and she came up and I was like, well, we can't have this. Uh, and it, her work's so different to my work as well because it's painting. I don't really paint. So I thought, right, I need to like stand out. So I changed it to two Zs. 
at uni, and that's when I did it, yeah. Because I know you very well, and I was just thought, well, I'll just kind of do my homework. Yeah. And I put your name in and came up with this one by mistake. Yeah. And I thought, wow. But what really intrigued <laughs> me also was it's almost like the diametric opposite know, yeah. of you. It's so could, strange. It, it's, it could not be. It's like your alter ego. Yeah. I should the, maybe collaborate with her. Well, I do find it fascinating mm. that somewhere out there is another Liz Brady and she's, by the sounds of it, painting these airy, earthy and watery <laughs> palettes uh, inspired by skies and so on. And your work, by contrast, is quite challenging and, mm. and tough and, yeah. and psychological. And just for my listeners, you say that through exploration into emotional atrocities, my work continues to create apprehension and psychological isolation, yeah, which feels really from the heart and really difficult. Yeah, definitely. So when I graduated, I started the Broken Grey Wires, and it was because I'd had a period of time in psychiatric hospital, and I felt like I needed to be very honest about my mental health because it was quite cathartic for me to make work about that in my final year at university. And I, people do sometimes say, you know, is it difficult being so open about it, but it actually makes it easier to cope with it, I think, definitely. So, yes, I wanted to talk a little bit about mental health in general because mm. it's, it seems like one of those topics that's quite difficult from an outsider point of view to get a handle on, to really appreciate. And I was trying to think of what would be an appropriate analogy or metaphor. And, and often people talk about, well, with a physical injury, like a broken leg or something, you can see it and you can empathise with it and you can say, you know what to say, but yeah. somehow with uh, mental uh, health, it's more difficult. What would be a, a suitable analogy or a good way of thinking about it? I think that's probably it. That is a good analogy is, you know, if you've got a broken leg, People will send you get well cards, people will sign the cast. Whereas if it's a broken mind, it's much more difficult to talk about. It seems more scary for people, which I don't really know why, because I think it's probably more common to have a mental health issue than break a bone. I think there's, obviously there's a lot of stigma in society about it and we just need to keep talking about it and keep normalising it because it can happen to anyone and it probably will happen to everyone at some point in their life or they'll know someone that's gone through it. And is it a matter of getting better in the sense of like with a broken leg mm -hmm. you expect to, to get better and then to put it behind you and then it's done? Is that the um, same or is that different? I think it depends what kind of mental health condition it is. So for me I've got bipolar and it can be managed but I don't think it's something that you really get over and you I'll probably have it for forever really but I take medication I have therapy and it's manageable I think if you have depression it can be something that you do get better from but I think it would always leave like a lasting imprint sure I should say are you happy to talk about all of this because I mean we've agreed to do the podcast and it's a central part of the work and you externalise it through your work but I'm feeling quite intrusive in, in asking you about it. Is it something that you are comfortable just talking openly or how does that work? Yeah definitely. Like I say I do talk about it with through my work, through my artwork, on my websites. There's like a, on the Broken Grey Wise website there's a sort of a story section where I discuss how Broken Grey Wise came about. So yeah I'm, I'm really happy talking about it and I think again 
it's normalising those conversations and it's making people aware that it's okay to talk about it. So what role would you say making art about your mental health states of mind, what role does the art play in that for you? I think it, in some ways it making art about those states of mind is quite... It's understanding more about my condition. I think I like to do a lot of research about psychology. I love R.D. Lang, for instance, a psychiatrist from Scotland from the past. He's great. Anti-psychiatry as well, so it's sort of talking about different ways of treatment. Psychology, philosophy, all those kind of things sort of bleed into my work and definitely makes it easier to understand and explore, really. One of the questions that I did have was whether you're almost boxing yourself into a corner, that's the totality of your subject matter, but where you might take it or where Mm. it might go. I think I've worried about that as well. The work is about mental health and has been for since I graduated really and but there's so many different strands to it like I mentioned before like psychology philosophy dreams I've been reading a book something like seven brief lessons in physics but all those kind of things do affect my work and it's just that mental health seems to be like a starting point we talk about film or literature or music everything that's inspiring to me affects the work in some way well I'm glad in a way that there's a an outwardness to it as well because I was I was wondering whether or not if you were focused totally on your own internal mental states whether it was going to just reinforce them yeah I do think when the beginning of sort of my career I was probably being negatively affected by focusing so much on my mental health because it was always the the dark side of my mental health that I was focusing on. Whereas more recently, as I've had, you know, more opportunities and experiences, the, the positive side of my mental health has come into play as well. It's with the playful, interactive works, it's not necessarily all focused on the dark stuff. And I think that's definitely helped my own mental health as well. Like generally, not, not just within art, within like life or whatever. I think it's probably helped to, to focus on the whole of the cycle, not just the depressive cycle yeah because often when we think of mental health it's it's almost synonymous with the bad isn't it and funnily enough going back to your alter ego some artists do focus on the positives but that that kind of the joy and the positive side of life is often not overlooked but maybe underplayed in art maybe that's art's role is to to think about the challenging side of life Yeah, I think it's sort of a way to make sense of certain situations and generally we don't make sense of the negative side of things, which is probably why there's stigma with mental health because we don't understand it. I do think it's important to focus as well on the positive side of life, I guess. Do you think the two are intertwined, that the happy and the sad, you can't have one without the other or is it possible to just cherry pick all the good bits? Well, I can't have one without the other because I have bipolar. (laughs) So it's, it's a cycle that goes from feeling joyful, feeling manic, whatever you want to call it, to going into depression. But I can't imagine what it would be like to not have those quite intense, fluctuating emotions. It's, it's still a struggle, but I am learning to, to cope with the, the different emotions. Um, so for me, yeah, yeah, I can't have one without the other, really. I don't know what it's like for you. Well, it's it. funny enough, I was reading the other day for something else that I was researching. There's a philosophical paper that apparently is quite a landmark paper by someone called Thomas Nagel called What It's Like to Be a Bat. 
and in which he argues about the limits of empathy. And he said, okay, let's have a thought experiment. What would it be like to be a bat? And you can think, well, you know, you wouldn't have, you'd have sonar and you'd have big ears and you'd be flapping around. So you can do a mental thought experiment to try and get into mm. the bat's frame of mind. But you can only do that. His, his key point was, you're still a human pretending to be a bat. You can never actually yeah. be that person. Yeah. And so yeah. I can empathise and I'm thinking, I wonder what it would really be like to have these manic highs or, you know, and I think, wow, that could be really great. <laughs> you know, you'd just be kind of coasting around with, it, with enormous amounts of energy. Uh, and, and then a cyclical approach. I can kind of think about it, but mm. I can never really know yeah. what it's like. Yeah, that's interesting about the bat. I don't know what it would be like to be a bat. No, I think I'll stick with human. Yeah, me too. So I wanted to talk to you and find out more about your broken grey wires. Now, you can't look at my list of <laughs> questions for you, I'm afraid, Liz. Because <laughs> your broken grey wires initiative is fantastic. And you have done some amazing exhibitions and curated work from some very big names. Do you want to say a little bit about who you've worked with and what you've been doing? Yeah, um... So 2017 was the first show, which I mentioned earlier, in London. And the upcoming show in Middlesbrough has got Martin Creed, Bill Viola, Pippalotti Wrist, Gillian Waring. Fantastic. So how do you go about the curation process itself? Mm -hmm. What intrigues you about being a curator as opposed to being an artist? I don't like calling myself a curator, even though I'm trying to say it more if people are asking me, because I am a curator as well, but I feel a bit like of an imposter because I've never like had formal training with it. Basically, I just put the work where I would, where I think I would enjoy seeing it if I'd come and see the exhibition. But there's more to curating. There than definitely is, and that's that. why I feel like an imposter. <laughs> but you, as an artist, decided to invite various other artists together to put together this show, which included a lot of very impressive uh, names in the art world and I was just curious as to your motivations for wanting to do that show. Yeah um, I think that the motivation was always working with artists that inspire me as an artist to make work. Also artists that are exploring in some way mental health themselves and I think it still is the same motivation but it is it was to bring mental health, the conversation of mental health, to the forefront of the art world. So the only real way I thought to do that was to try and work with, you know, relevant artists who were winning the Turner Prize, because I've worked with a few of those artists, and have them all in a group where they haven't been in a show with those other artists before. And I think that that has probably worked to some extent. I think it has brought the conversation of mental health in art and how what role as artists we do play with mental health and the community. So it's, it's a slower process because you sort of, you email the gallery, then the gallery emails them, and then they email the gallery back, and the gallery emails you back. So it takes longer to find out if they're going to be involved or any if they are involved. Things like insurance, like, so the Chapman Brothers work, it was loaned from a gallery in London. Um, so then you have to deal with another gallery, you know, you have to talk about loaning that. Whereas if it's, you know, more of an emerging artist, you're more likely to be working, to talking directly to them. And in terms of their willingness and receptiveness to your project, is it just a matter of saying how about it? 
generally when I'm starting a project like this, when I'm starting to contact artists, I will send a brief overview of the proposal of what the exhibition's about, a bit, little bit about Broken Grey Wires, but then I'll also send more of a personal email to them explaining why I specifically want them involved, how it sort of inspired me, what particular work that I'd like to use. And I think that has probably been the main difference. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about your video work because a lot of them are monochrome, slightly grainy feel and often quite a close-up of you. And they're quite mesmerising, but also quite disturbing at times. There's a really nice one of you gently submerging beneath the water and then your face emerging again. Yeah, quite like the surrealism of David Lynch and Paul Thomas Anderson. They're probably my two favourite directors. So does surrealism inform your current work? Yeah, I've got a piece that I'm working on for a project in Germany, in Chemnitz. So it's sort of a cubed room with no doors, four windows on each side. And then I will be filming here at home. So I've got to act a little bit, which is going to be interesting. I've got to make out that I'm sort of trapped in that box, in that room. And then in each window there'll be a TV and it will play me as if I'm trapped in that room. So I think that's quite surreal and that'll be quite weird to see. And each angle for the window is sort of like the front of me, the back of me and the sides of me. So it is as if the box is the inside of my brain. I always use OSB board mm -hmm. because I'm sort of obsessed with it a little bit. I love the material of it. and. Um, so that's the chunky uh, wood chip board yeah. that's got quite a rough feel to it, hasn't it? It has, yeah, and it's sort of, yeah, it's like all different textures of the wood chip within the board. I just think it's really lovely. I'd have a house built out of it if I could. <laughs> because you did do a little room that went to this, well, under stairs that kind of went yeah. nowhere, and that was out of the same material yeah, as well, yeah. yeah, that yeah. was in Coventry for the pod which is like a mental health art organisation in, in Coventry. And um, they sort of commissioned me to, to build something in the Bob and Roberta Smith shed. That's their gallery. You open the door and there were stairs and it looked like you were under the stairs. And then when you open the door, there was the sound of people running up and down stairs that was playing. Fantastic. Because what interests me also is that it's one thing to have the idea for the video or for the soundtrack or whatever but then the realization of it and the making it physical mm. is another layer isn't it another yeah. element to it that to to make it into to give it its most its best presentation i suppose yeah definitely it's um it was really important for me to when i first started making video i didn't really want the work to be shown on a monitor or that's why if I do show video work and it's just going to be it's not going to be within an installation I generally show them on old box TVs I don't really like the the flat screen on the wall just that because I think maybe it's because I'm not confident enough in the video to stand up on their own I need a different element with it I, well I'm interested in that because the box TV is very kind of 
retro art chic mm. and you often see a video work put inside these old big clunky monitors yeah. what do they bring to the party that a flat screen doesn't would you say i just think it's the aesthetic is is a bit more interesting for me that's just it there's no you know there's no artistic bullshit reason why i'm why i'm using the you're not referencing no, you know not, old no. technology no but i think I just like the aesthetic of it and I just find it a little bit more interesting than than the flat screens. Yeah, I think with my own work when I'm starting I'm starting to develop some digital animations and I haven't really got beyond the making of the animations and showing them just uh, on my own screen at home and actually the presentational element of those now I need to think about how best to then realise them and whether whether they would work better with a particular type of monitor or a particular type of projector or large or small. All of those considerations uh, come on top of the initial idea and, the, yeah. and then the, the realisation of it, don't they? Yeah. It's, it's something that has only been the past maybe four years where I've really started to think about the best way to display the videos because... I think when I first started looking at video artists or when I'd seen video displayed in galleries, it, it was sort of not boring, but I would when I go to galleries, I if the video is being played on a, a normal monitor, very rarely would go and put the headphones on and watch it. Whereas if it was displayed a bit more interest, for me, if it was more interesting within an installation, I think that I'd be more likely to be intrigued by it. And I think that's something that's easily forgotten, isn't it? That to get to first base with an artwork, you've got to intrigue the viewer. Yeah. You've got to hook them in somehow yeah. um, so that they are tempted to pick up the mm. headphones. They are tempted to engage with it because the gallery experience is that you can just walk straight through and walk straight past it. Yeah. You've got to yeah. interrupt them and stop them and make them curious to find mm. out more, haven't you? Yeah, so I was interested that you were saying that your, for your video piece for Germany, you're going to have to be acting these internal mental states. Is it acting rather than actually being in those mental states? For this piece, I think that it will be acting. Just because I have to be acting as if I'm trapped within maybe my mind, within a space. And if I was generally in that space, if it was that bad, I don't think that I'd be able to film that. Although, although recently on some videos, I there is actually footage of me crying, and it wasn't filmed as I was making the video, it was filmed in maybe the, the weeks before that, but I've been crying because I've been sad, and the first thought was to film myself crying, even just for like five, ten seconds, but even though I've been in that really difficult state of mind, being an artist is sort of at the forefront of my mind and I've thought, okay, let's take advantage of this situation and get some footage for maybe a future film that I've made. So maybe, yeah, maybe it isn't completely acting, maybe it is sort of... And it's quite curious actually to be simultaneously as you say, in a, in a sad frame of mind to the point of being crying, but also thinking to yourself, this is material, yeah. you know, <laughs> where's, where's the camera? Quite sadistic, isn't it, really? <laughs> well, it's, it's quite voyeuristic or mm. kind of turning the camera back on yourself. Yeah. I think it's, it's also taking out of 
be coming out of that state of mind a little bit. So I make art to as a distraction as well sometimes. Well, maybe that is uh, a good opportunity for us to pause and have a cup of tea. Sounds good to me. Excellent. Right, so we are back after a refreshing cup of tea for me. Yeah. Nothing for you? Nothing for me. Why not? I've been drinking too much tea recently. Yeah? Yeah. Give you the jitters. A bit, yeah. Yeah. And a couple of slices of flapjack, which just kind of hit the spot. Yeah. So I'm ready for round two. Good. Okay. Well, in fact, we were talking whilst you were making it a cup of tea. You said about hearing voices. Yeah. I can't remember how we got onto that subject. Oh, because I was saying that I think that I'm blabbing. Oh, yes. You were concerned that you were not making sense or just kind of rabbiting a little bit. Would that be a fair way to summarise it? And that you had this voice in your Mm -hmm. head that was being critical. Mm -hmm. And you said, you don't understand because I've always got this voice. Mm -hmm. And and I said, oh, can we talk about that? And you said, yeah, okay. So (laughs) do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's basically just that. It's, you know, there's just a voice constantly criticising like you said and it's tell it's just been during the first part of the podcast it's been there now and again saying you don't know what you're talking about and is it um again as an outsider trying to get my head around this because on the one hand I'm sure everybody has some sort of inner voice and probably a critical voice and actually I was listening to a sports podcast and they were talking to Alistair Cook, the cricketer, oh, yeah. and who's been fantastically successful for England. But he was talking about having this constant, I can't remember whether he called it a monkey on his shoulder. Uh, there was a phrase that they used, and he actually spoke to a sports psychologist about managing this voice that was telling him he wasn't good enough to right, play yeah. cricket for England Amazing. in spite of the fact that he's got this exemplary record so mm-hmm. to some extent I suspect that people do have it but then you hear about people who have voices talking to them as almost like personalities yeah how would you describe yours I wouldn't say it was a personality like everyone has that critical voice in their head but it sounds like it's coming from outside of my head So it sounds like it's in the room with us right now. Wow. Which is interesting because I was talking the other day to Beric Livingstone about different mental states of mind because he's a composer and a musician. And I was saying how I really don't feel that I've got much by way of a a musical inner mental landscape. And this feels like it's another type of mental landscape that's, that's in there with you. Yeah, definitely. I think it's hard even to explain it to doctors sometimes i know that it's my own thoughts but it does sound like it's not in my mind it sounds like it's just in the room with with me like you are and, and is it always critical are there any positives to no. it always critical always critical now i couldn't end this conversation without talking to you a little bit about football yeah because you are a massive efton football club fan I am. And I'm a Spurs fan. I think I'm an order of magnitude lower than you in terms of my passion and commitment to Spurs. 
First of all, how common would you say it is for artists also to be football fans? I don't get the impression that the two overlap that often. It's very rare to talk about football with other artists. Like if we were in a gallery and we'd met, I'm sure that football would come up. Whereas I don't think I've ever, apart from Chris Belkowski, who's a big Manchester United fan, I don't think that there's anyone that, that I know who, who sort of is in both communities, which is strange, really. Yes, and often artists are quite passionately anti-football. Football is one of those things that's very Marmite, love it or hate it. How did your um, interest and passion for Everton come to be? Definitely from my dad. Uh, I had a season ticket for Everton when I was younger and we'd go every weekend and I, I wasn't really massively into it at first but I think getting going to Goodison and sort of seeing it, the game live really was massive for me to get to be so passionate about it. So for for many years I, I was there, like I say, every week. I think as well we were so awful in the nineties. We you know we were flirting with relegation more often than not. And somehow that I know this sounds really strange, but I sort of not in, I didn't enjoy the that, but it it maybe connects a little bit to my my art with the failure side of things. Everton are a bit of a loser club. We've got you know. Liverpool were the most successful neighbours, we're overlooked a little bit and I sort of take a bit of comfort from that. I relate to the club because I feel a bit like a loser myself, sort of the go under the radar a little bit, quite like that, yeah. That's interesting because me being a Spurs fan, we're also poor neighbours to Arsenal who yeah. are the bigger club and the more successful club. But unlike you, that really bugs me and I don't I don't feel that I'm happy to be supporting a club mm. that's not doing as well as it might do. And in fact, when it's doing badly, I'm a, I wouldn't say I'm a fair weather supporter, but if they're not doing well, that's a big downer for me. Oh, it's a, it's a massive downer for me, it affects. It affects me so. I mean, you know, it affects me a lot when we when we do awful. But there's a comfort to it. That, you know, I think with with mental health as well. It, when I'm doing well, when things are positive, it feels almost alien to me. It, I don't know if I feel more comfortable when things are not going too well because I'm. It's more of a habit, and I understand how to act when things aren't going well. I know how to cope with it. I know how to you know how to go day to day but when things are going well there's always that little feeling saying you know it's gonna the voice again maybe saying score gonna come crashing down and I think that's like Everton if we're doing well they know so well how to let you down and it will come crashing down at some point well in a way you've kind of answered my question because I was going to say surely that can't be good for your mental health that you're every Saturday you're state of mind is dependent on something that's totally outside of yeah. your own control and the highs and lows the highs of winning and the lows of losing for me that's too much and that's why I'm slightly semi-detached because mm. I just don't want to invest so much in something that is beyond me yeah but the thing with Everson is you know we know we're gonna lose so you, there's no expectation there so when we do win it's great I, I really don't think there's much like being in Goodison Park when we score a last-minute winner. I don't think there's any feeling that can replicate that at all. It's it's amazing. And so when they lose, how long does that sense of gloom last? And is it is it the same quality of gloom? In other words, can you detach yourself from it, on the one hand be really down about it, but actually, as you say, manage it and keep it at arm's length? 
I think it depends who it's against, who the loss is against, and in what circumstances. We've had so many losses against Liverpool in the last minute, and I think that that does affect quite badly, uh, and it can last. I mean, it doesn't really last. The good thing with football is there's always the week after to change the mood. So really, it doesn't they don't last that long because you've got the next game to focus on, and we could win that one. And but that's still that could be a whole week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A whole week true. of being in a foul mood yeah. <laughs> because of something outside your I know. control. It's so it's so stupid, really, until you think about it. But it's just I don't think I'd change being a football fan for anything. Now, and what about the whole thing with Liverpool? Because it comes across to me that you do. I say hate is hate is a very strong word <laughs> to use about anyone or anything, but it borders on hatred. And I'm just wondering how that works in terms of it being a sporting event or a sporting arena. Well, I just, they're Everton's rivals and it's sort of been drilled into me from a young age to, you know, they are our rivals. We don't like them. And is it healthy? No, it's not healthy. For you? For anyone. Yeah, I suppose that's what was behind it in terms of kind of love and peace and harmony and thinking back to kind of good mental health and how art is trying to make things better. And and yet there are these primal kind of mm. uh, passions. And I don't know if it's cathartic or whether it is just bad and, you know, really you should be giving it up for Lent, you know. <laughs> it's a good distraction, I think. I think that's, that's an important thing as well. It's 90 minutes on a Saturday afternoon Nothing else matters. It's just watching the club, watching the team, try and win. But yeah. I'm thinking more specifically with the Liverpool thing. Oh, okay. That that yeah. level that level of emotional engagement is quite scary to me, actually. <laughs> so do you have friends who are Liverpool fans? Two. <laughs> I mean, is, is, that a, is that a deal breaker? Um, we, I think we silently acknowledge not to talk about football yeah and that works well <laughs> good yeah well that's i think that kind of summarizes i say the different order of magnitude because i'm feeling i'm a very inadequate spurs fan because you know i don't really mind arsenal that much as much as i as i really should do i probably shouldn't admit that um actually i have this little theory that art and football there are parallels between the two just more generally speaking now, for example, people often think in terms of the art world about the superstar artists and the kind of the major league, that really thin top layer of these artists who, whose work sells for millions and hundreds of millions of pounds. Um, you, and you've got the same with the kind of Premier League footballers yeah. and people tend to equate the Premier League with football, but they forget that there's the long tail right from the Premier League all the way down through uh, Championship, semi-professional, amateur, right down to Sunday League players. And they all get a lot of enjoyment from yeah. it. And it's true in the, the art world as well, that mm-hmm. it's not just about the Premier League art stars, I don't think. No. It's important for every one of those footballers, whether they're not doing the Premier League or they're playing on a Sunday afternoon. And the same with art. It doesn't matter if you're showing in galleries, if you're making art for yourself, for your friends. It's art, isn't it, at the end of the day? And if it's important to you, then it's important. And the other analogy that I sometimes trundle out is that it's very difficult to persuade someone who doesn't like football to like it. You can describe it, you can say why it's important to you, 
but there's a resistance from some people to football and there's a resistance from some people to contemporary art. Yeah. You can say why it's important to you and you, what, you're, what they're missing out on, but somehow it doesn't click. Yeah, that's, that is actually a good analogy. Explaining football or art to someone that isn't interested is very difficult. Yes, it, it goes beyond explaining. It's almost, you don't want to convert someone, but, no. well, you kind of do in a way. You, you know, you think it's their loss, they're missing out. Yeah, if you're so passionate about something and they're not, you want to share that passion. And But if, if someone is not interested, I don't know if there's any way to get them, which is a shame. You can lead a horse to water, but exactly, yeah. you can't make them drink. Yeah. Well, Liz, maybe that is a good point at which to say thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's been really fascinating to hear all about your art, your work with mental health and um, your work with Broken Grey Wires. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Robert. Been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media. And check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon. Thank you.